Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr. I'm a Senior Director of Product Marketing here at Yieldtreat. Today, I'm joined once again by Richard Excel, who is a Clinical Assistant Professor of Finance at the University of Illinois Geese College of Business. Richard, welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be back, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always a pleasure. Um, you know, we always feel like we we pick up tremendous insights around what's going on within the market and what some of the key drivers are, especially those that sometimes are a little bit uh, under the surface. So maybe to kind of jump right back in and pick up from our last conversation, what what are some of the big drivers of the market as you see right now, and how has that evolved over the last you know let's say month or two? Well, this this month in particular in July, as we kind of came out of the Fourth of July um, long weekend. Um, there's a, there's a lot of information that that investors have been having to digest so economic news earnings news etc and there's the expectations was that all this data was going to be negative in some in some level right and whether it be inflation being too high um, or earnings starting to really slow down there, there was this kind of debate of of how bad things would be not if they were bad etc but i think one of the things that's that's important to watch has been What's been the reaction to that news? Because of course we don't know. Um, we you know we can't survey everyone in the world to know how they're positioned, what they're thinking, et cetera. But when we watch the reaction to the news, um, we can kind of get a sense of of how much optimism or pessimism there is in the market. It's kind of the classic. If you're a poker player, you know that uh, everyone at the table has a tell, and that's kind of the market's tell, if you will. And as we've seen, even though this news has come out slightly you know more and more negatives and you know the cpi data was was one element of it you look at some of the earnings that have come out you know on an earnings growth basis it has been negative as was expected however the markets and i don't just say the stock market the markets have been responding favorably to all that news which tells you that maybe people were getting a little bit too pessimistic yeah so so it's kind of like you know they always say um around earnings and some other key data points there's the estimate and then there's the whisper number, right? And the whisper yeah. number usually drives a lot of the action because it's what everyone's not willing to necessarily say out loud, but that's where they're kind of anchoring some of their expectations, which generally tend to be a little bit more uh, on the negative side. Yeah, and I mean, I, it kind of goes back to, I don't know if you've read the, the book, Reminences of a Stock Operator, where they talk about the uh, the, the famous trader, Jesse Livermore. Um, and he talks about the story that if he was ever given a stock tip, the first thing he would do would be go, to go out and actually sell the stock. And he would see what the reaction was. 
And if the market could hold up in the face of him selling that stock, then he knew it was a legitimate bull trend. But if he couldn't, it probably means he was the last person getting into the trade, which is never the right place to be. That's very interesting. So you mentioned CPI, which of course always leads us a little bit more naturally to talk about Fed and Fed policy. You know, after the print came out, which was a little bit higher, you know, especially the headline number relative to the expectation, and I think, you know, one of the largest prints in the last 30, 40 years or so, started to be some rumblings about whether or not the Fed needed to move off their expected 75 basis point hike and potentially into a 100 basis point type range. Um, walk us through whether or not you think that's, that would be the right decision, where you think the Fed might ultimately end up, um, and again, how you think they're doing overall with their flight to at least contain uh, inflation in the short term. Yeah, I mean, immediately after the CPI and then the PPI the following day, which was even worse than the CPI, you know, the market at one point was priced in 100 basis points for July. It's subsequently backed off a little bit to be, it's pricing in about 80, excuse me, about 80 basis points. So a little bit more than three hikes and it's pricing in another 60 basis points than in September. Um, but interestingly, um, something that hasn't backed off is that while that market was pricing in more rate hikes in the near term, it was pricing in faster rate cuts in 2023, suggesting that the bond market was telling you that they were anticipating this to be a big Fed policy error, that the Fed was gonna go along with this, but at the same time, it was gonna be a big policy error, which is one of the reasons why we saw initially treasuries rallied in the face of uh, that CPI and PPI news, which is again, counterintuitive what I think a lot of people are saying. And the way I think about, or the way I'm looking at it is that, um, you know, the, I first, I think for certain the Fed's going to go 75 basis points um, next week when they meet, I don't see the possibility of a hundred, even though I understand why the market was initially thinking that. Um, I think what we're going to see is a 75 basis point move, but then next month's, um, CPI number, um, certainly on a month-on-month -month basis, probably is going to start weakening a little bit. And the reason I say that, even though I think that this inflation mindset has kind of crept into a lot of uh, consumers and investors, and we're seeing that in, in the wage in uh, the wages that have been moving up, is that if you look over the last, you know, since April or May, or in some cases June, over the last couple of months, you know, grain and livestock prices are down about twenty percent. Um, that's, you know, the, our food prices are down about 20%. Gasoline prices are down almost 30%. Um, natural gas prices were down about 45%, and they've bounced because of this hot weather we're having, but they're still down 25% of the peak. And so where people are spending their money on food, on gasoline, on electricity, um, a lot of those have come down a fair bit. And so I'm not suggesting we're going to see a low CPI, but I think you're going to start to see that the second derivative turn negative and start to see things uh, peaking. And the Fed will get that data, you know, after they kind of hike 75 basis points. And so uh, to me, what sets up is really, really interesting is looking at that end of August Jackson Hole Summit, because that's when all the central bankers come together. And, you know, we're going to see the, the ECB will have hiked rates probably at that point but they're facing potentially a recession. The Fed will have hiked another seven, 75 basis points most likely, but they might be seeing inflation coming off the boil. So is that the point where we might start to see central bankers pivot and, and talk about while they might continue with another couple hikes, the being cognizant of, of the slowing economy as we go into the next year. So I, to me, I think that sets up for that end of August Jackson Hole to be potentially a really interesting catalyst um, for those that like to follow the central bank. Yeah, especially in terms of rhetoric and kind of positioning for the forward, it feels pretty 
and again, n- not certain, but it feels fairly predictable what the next two actions will be when when the FOMC meets to kind of uh, you know determine what the Fed funds rate and interest rate path could be. Um, but certainly, there's an opportunity, as you mentioned, to kind of start pivoting, especially because you know when you look at the data, and I don't remember all of it off the top of my head. It was always you know within 90 days or so of the last rate hike, the Fed, or maybe it was shortly thereafter, the Fed has to start cutting, which usually means they don't find the optimal rate. And then just you know stay there for a while. Usually they hike to potentially in a, a, a too high of a level and have to course correct quite a bit, which leads to what you were mentioning, which was still a little bit of an upslope in in Fed funds, but potentially as early as 2023, the need to start to loosen monetary policy and at least you know take some of the the the, the pressures off of of the rising rate market. Just to, on that point, Peter, like one of the ways that that where this pivot could happen isn't necessarily on slowing the rate hikes um, or, you know, it could be um, continuing on that pace of rate hikes or rate normalization as they might call it, but backing off on quantitative tightening, mm-hmm. because that's something that basically, especially with what's going on in the mortgage market, it's becoming difficult for the Fed to even get to the numbers on quantitative tightening that I mentioned, but they could potentially back off that and call that, um, you know, and, and back it into some sort of reasons of market volatility, why they want to back off which in effect, though, is backing off some of the tightening that they had planned. Yep, yep, very fair. What, one of my questions for you is, is next up is, is around inflation. So when we started you know, earlier in the year, maybe even as early as late last year, um, there was always nuance to the conversation. There was always, you know, well, inflation is running a little bit hot, but if you look at some of the underlying drivers, it's kind of isolated to here. It seems as though all of that nuance and more elevated conversation seems to be entirely washed out, where now it's just a headline number, which at least for Wall Street has never really been the case. They've traditionally, along with the Fed, looked at core price measures as opposed to those that are more volatile with headline. How has that conversation evolved? And do you think the Fed in the market right now is just focused on these headline numbers and is throwing everything out the window because it's just not worth fighting? Well, I think it's it's a lot easier to focus on the core and, and reduce or get rid of the uh, the volatile food and energy when those prices haven't spiked nearly as much as they have right now. But what we're seeing in terms of the, this year, the spikes in food and energy are causing governments to fail around the world, right? Um, and now that's mostly been in the emerging and frontier, frontier markets. But we're seeing a, a lot of pain for consumers in Europe, we're seeing a lot of pain for consumers in the United States. Um, and, and when we start to see this type of energy and food insecurity leading leading to government instability, I think that's when and why there's such a, a focus on the headline number and not just, you know, uh, reactively reducing or getting rid of the food and energy and focusing on the core. Now, now all of that said, I think, um, like I've, I've said many, many times, is that inflation isn't just a number, it's a mindset. And, and, and so when I say that, what I mean is when people start to think that inflation is going to be here with us, they're going to demand higher wages. They're going to affect the way they consume things. And that's when you get a little bit more stickiness and a little bit more permanence. We've had enough of a move that this is starting to creep into the regular discussions that you and I might have with our friends when we're going out. We're talking about the prices of things, et cetera, more so than we probably ever have before, especially when it comes to food, whether it's eating at home or eating out or gasoline, et cetera. And that's when it's starting to creep into the mindset. And that's what central bankers want to work against, whether it be on the inflationary side or the de- deflationary side, is trying to get get it away from that kind of mindset. I'm kind of curious on that, especially when you think about deflation, right? So you've got potentially a Fed that is continuing to enact relatively aggressive tightening measures. 
And then you potentially have a byproduct of that, which could lead to a potential recession and a definitive in that environment drop in overall aggregate demand. So then the question to me just becomes, how much of this is potentially at a risk of going from uh, historic high prints in, in, in inflation to potentially you know, a deflationary world? Or is, is, do you think the, be- the most realistic outcome in that scenario is really just a deceleration of inflation? I think you know where I come out on that is is a deceleration of inflation, and I come at it from two different angles. The first is just looking empirically through time of what has happened when we've had a recession or an economic slowdown, and how much that can pull down inflation. And it typically will pull down inflation, oftentimes back to about a two percent level, which ultimately, remember, is the Fed's target. Um, in some periods um, where we've had conditions as we see now, maybe it's only pulled back down to 4%. But in either case, the inflation has come off the highs, brought down by the the demand destruction of of a recession or an economic slowdown, et cetera. And I certainly think that that's probably some sort of the glide path that we're on. However, as I look out, not just the next six months or 12 months, but even a little bit further, I think some of what we can't lose sight of is that some of the, in fact, probably most of the drivers of the inflation that we're seeing this year are not so much heightened demand and then falling demand, it's supply issues, right? And commodities are driven by supply and demand. And what we've seen in in a lot of these products is that there's supply issues. Now, of course, we obviously can see what's going on with the energy supply in Europe, but we've also, remember, we're seeing a lack of new supply at high prices coming on even in the U.S. because the people in, in, you know, the, in Texas and oil and natural gas aren't getting the certain that they want from D.C. And so they're not bringing incremental capacity online. If we have to re, you know, replace that natural gas in Europe with LNG in the, from the United States, um, it takes a long time to build those terminals. And so people need to have confidence you know, that, that they need it's a 30-year contract essentially. So that supply isn't coming online as quickly as possible. We had you know huge disruption in the supply of global fertilizer, right? And and so that's really affected a lot of what we've seen in, in the commodity in the agricultural products, certainly in the grains, and that feeds into the livestock. So it feeds into all food prices. And we've even seen disruptions in supply in, in rare earths, et cetera, that kind of feeds into the electrification of the economy. And so I think we can't lose sight of the fact that we still have some supply issues that we need to work through. And that potentially, even though we might see a near-term reduction in inflation in the next uh, two, three quarters, et cetera, if that supply issues stay, um, you know, stay where they are right now, we could see again, a reacceleration of inflation. So essentially, you know, as much as anything else, uh, you know, outside of some of the other considerations, you know, if, if companies are able to pass through some of those costs, it's very unlikely that they, uh, you know, again, at any point, try to reduce those. Those are probably pretty sticky, even if their input costs potentially start to go down. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, we'll, that we'll see where the elasticity of, of goods really are, right? I mean, you might see, as we've seen already, more and more of the discretionary consumer products are certainly more elastic. And we've that those are the companies that have struggled to kind of pass on those prices. But in other things, um, certainly where we talk about food and energy, the ability to pass those prices on has you know, people have not held back at all. So I think that's something, that's why I don't want to really ignore the headline number and only focus on the core because that's a kind of a big driver. And so, you know, we've kicked off earnings seasons for, earnings season for uh, Q2. You know, some of the large S&P 500 companies are starting to report. You know, you mentioned relative to expectations, you know, roughly in line or so, um, although down relative to previous quarters. 
any other you know insights you know you're starting to glean right now from how uh, earnings has gone? Well, I think you know the the biggest number. If I look sector by sector, the largest number of of big reporting companies we've seen is in financials, right? And financials are always an interesting sector because we get a we get a lot of input on the economy overall as well. In addition to to the the idiosyncratic news coming from it, and you know you look at obviously the the big bellwether money center banks. Jamie Dimon had talked earlier this year about a hurricane coming. He's not necessarily backing off that, but reading through his comments, there were, there were some positives as well when he's talking about consumer balance sheets, et cetera. He certainly highlights a lot of the negatives that we're seeing globally, but there were some positives in there. If we look at banks such as Bank of America or Citigroup or Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank, you, know, you look through those, which are pretty, you know, obviously major money center banks, and you saw more positives than negatives. You saw loan growth actually ticking higher. You saw net interest income ticking higher. So, you know, if banks are making money, then we shouldn't worry so much about the flow of credit and ultimately it's the flow of credit that drives the economy. And so while I'm not suggesting that that means that we won't have an economic slowdown, I'm saying it probably means that that any sort of slowdown we have might be shallower than some people were thinking. I don't know how you feel, but I get the sense in a lot of people I've talked to and a lot of the data that I looks, look at, especially when it comes to sentiment data, that people feel that whatever slowdown we're going to have is going to be akin to 2008. And I just don't see that in the things that I'm looking at. And I think that was corroborated by the news that we got from the financial companies, which I think kind of set the tone for what we might see uh, the rest of this earnings season. And then based on some of that too, any indications, uh, actually, before I go there, a quick question, you know, you mentioned Jamie Dimon's headline grabbing comments. How much of that is gamemanship versus him actually speaking, you know, talking to his book versus him actually speaking about, um, you know, the likelihood of something that severe? Well, my experience on wall street is that every single person talks their book. So there's definitely an element of it, of him talking his book and, and with Jamie Dimon, who is not, not afraid to kind of confront and discuss political issues, you have to understand there's probably a message to Washington, D.C. within there, too. So, you know, I, I don't want to dismiss that that's a, probably a big, big part of it. But I think, you know, when you also think about it, it could also be, you know, individual bank positioning. Because if you look at, you know, of, of the big banks, J.P. Morgan also had the worst quarter of all of those. And so what they're seeing internally is probably a little bit more negative than what other people are seeing for whatever reason. But let's just you know say, like, one of the biggest risks people are worried about with, the banks has been the fact that rates are moving higher, but anyone who's been following the banks for the last 18 months knows that every single bank you look at all the way down to the small community banks have been positioned for higher rates. And so it, it, it's one of those things, again, this is like the recession, the most talked about recession. I, I don't think in my career I've ever heard people talk you know, about anticipating recession as much as we have now. But if we go back even 18 months ago, higher rates had not been more anticipated than anything, you know, anytime I remember either. So I think a lot of what we're seeing unfold is exactly what everyone thought would happen. And so therefore, I just don't think that, we, that the, the reality of what we'll see in terms of reactions in financial market prices will be as severe as other people think. And, and you know, we sit here today on, on July 20th, and we've seen recently a bit of a, a pop, at least in equity markets. I haven't seen if this also existed in credit markets as well. Do you think that's in any way indicative of the market really starting to find a bottom off that June low? Or do you think that this is, you know, one of those bear market bull bounces? And then it kind of add a little bit more to that, just to hear your thoughts. You talked about increasing recession. Do you think, you know, that would potentially be the catalyst that that causes the markets to find a bottom? Yeah, I th- we, have, we have certainly seen 
the bounce, not just in equity markets, but we've seen it in things like look at look at the the crude market where we got announcements of more supply coming online and it's more than ten dollars off its low. We've certainly seen, you know, even the treasury market, which which bounced on that inflation news, et cetera. We've we've seen it impacting other markets. I think you're absolutely right. The, we haven't seen credit spreads narrowing as much as we've seen equity markets bouncing. And and you know, that's somewhat indicative of the fact that a lot of investors have preferred to have their quote idiosyncratic beta exposure in credit instead of equities. And so I think it was a little bit more of a crowded market. So there's probably a little bit more to work off. I also think you see that the equities, especially the major equity indices, tend to be the, the hedging vehicle of choice. And so this this kind of bounce off the lows seems to me to be a little bit more unwinding of hedges. In fact, if we look at the price action yesterday, July 19th, the most shorted stocks outperform the headline index by almost 3%. And if you went sector by sector by sector, we saw the short, the most shorted stocks in those sectors outperforming. And if we look at the sector performance, it was the sectors that had been had done the worst, whether it be communication services or industrials or even energy, which most people didn't realize was down more off its highs than even technology was, were the best performing sectors. While those that underperformed, but were still positive, were the defensive sectors like staples and utilities, where a lot of people had been hiding. So I get the sense that this is really just too much pessimism. And we're starting to see short covering on, you know, taking off some hedges and an unwind of that. It's so to your point, it seems to be more of a bear market rally that probably doesn't have a lot of legs to it because after all, while the news might be slightly better than expected, it's still not good news. And so until we get the fed out of the way, until we see a peak of inflation, until we get something to where we can say there's good news coming out, I don't think people are really going to want to take a lot of risk. That doesn't, that's not what history has kind of suggested to us. And so I do think it's a little bit of a, a bear market rally that, you know, because of offsides positioning, but it's something where I think investors want to be thinking about how things might play out over the next several months and how they want to have their portfolios positioned. I wouldn't suggest people need to chase anything, but I also think, you know, they don't want to, to panic on different different elements either and try to try to focus a little bit more further out and under, and see that the story is unfolding the way a lot of people thought it would. And to that point, you know, when you do think about a potential catalyst for a bounce and regardless of the timing of the when or even at what price, what do you think that catalyst is? Historically, it feels like it's always been something along the lines of a Fed policy pivot. Do you think that's going to be, and even if it's just a change in rhetoric, either at Jackson Hole, as you mentioned, where there's maybe the groundwork for a September continuation of, of some of some rate hiking, but potential to at least start to communicate some moderation or even loosening of policy, whether it's the balance sheet roll off or anything on the Fed funds rate. Do you think that's the catalyst or is it really going to be, and of course they're a little bit correlated, uh, the actual data that starts to, uh, you know, start to beat expectations and, you know, prove to be durable? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I do think it's a little bit of both. I, I do think you have to understand, you, you have to see a Fed pivot to get people to really buy into it, even if we start to see better data. Because if we start to see better economic data and the Fed hasn't announced a pivot yet, then the market might be worried that the Fed's going to have the leeway to, to act even more aggressively. So I do think the necessary precondition is that we see some element of a Fed pivot. But I, I think when we're thinking about economic data, I mean, the way it stimulus flows into and out of the economy, um, the, the leading elements of it, it always starts with housing, right? It, and, and that's been one of the biggest concerns of investors um, throughout all of 2022 has been, will housing market roll over, right? We've seen almost a doubling of mortgage rates. We've seen some of the elements of, we've seen, you know, the NHB, NAHB housing index in uh, plummeting. We've seen 
housing starts, building permits, existing home sales, all slowing down. And so there's a concern that housing could have some of that 2004, 2005 type of feel to it. There's a flip side to that story that we're still at at almost historically low levels of inventory. And so the question is, how much do mortgage rates play into the, the housing decision versus uh, unemployment rate and the ability of people having jobs and higher wages. And that, that's something that we have to see play out. But if housing can stabilize, we know that as housing stabilizes and moves back up, that ultimately leads to to new orders for everything to, to build a house, to furnish a house, et cetera, which means that there's going to be more profits for companies and ultimately more employment. And so you could then start to think about how that story would unfold on a positive front over the coming quarters. But I think the necessary precondition is the Fed pivot, and then we would want to see um, leading indicators of the economy, especially housing, start to bottom, and that's when I think people can get a little bit more optimistic. Okay, so so you know, it, kind of any any thoughts or, or closing thoughts here? You know, I, I know you mentioned investor sentiment, which you know again hasn't really materially improved. Anything else that's kind of top of mind here as some parting thoughts? It's not just negative sentiment; it's historically negative sentiment, right? If we look at the, you know, the University of Michigan sentiment index, if we look at the AAII bulls minus bears index, if we look at the global, the B of A global fund manager survey that came out just yesterday, the levels of, of sentiment here are negative at an extreme, like an all-time extreme. The, the outlook in the survey yesterday from Bank of America, their global fund managers, the outlook for profits, the outlook for the economy, the positioning um, going forward is the worst it's been this century. All right. So we're talking about historic levels of pessimism. And so we have to ask ourselves, is the economy and the slowdown that we see unfold really at a historic level or not? And if not, then this pessimism, even if it were to move to neutral, could lead to a little bit more of this bear market rally that we're talking about. So it's not just that people are a little bit negative. People are epically negative, and, and we just probably see a, need to see a little bit more of a sideways market to kind of work off some of the, some of the concerns that we have and also some of the excesses that we have. Fantastic. Richard, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Um, always appreciate having you on and certainly getting all your insights into what's going on with the markets. You know, And certainly it's, it remains very challenging times, I think, for a lot of people trying to navigate it. Thank you, of course, also to all of our listeners. Remember to visit Yieldtreat.com to learn more about our offerings. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss a show. Thank you and see you next week. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment products. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. 
trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.